ketones, despite all their benefits, have a dark side. And that dark side is ketoacidosis, a serious and life-threatening medical situation that's most infamously associated with poorly controlled diabetes. But ketoacidosis is not always caused by diabetes. For certain susceptible individuals exposed to the right circumstances, ketoacidosis can be caused by alcohol abuse, fasting, or even, in rare cases, low-carbohydrate diets. To learn more, keep on watching. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. Today we're in our 36th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism, where in continuing our unit on ketones, we're discussing ketoacidosis. Shown on the screen, the signs and symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis are as follows. Polydipsia, polyuria, and dehydration, meaning you're drinking too much, you're peeing too much, and you're net losing water. Nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, anorexia, fatigue or malaise, hyperventilation, sometimes neurological abnormalities, in extreme cases, coma, and if untreated, death. To begin understanding how ketoacidosis develops, we need to start thinking about how the acid load placed on the blood changes during someone who's well-fed on a mixed diet and someone who's undergoing ketogenic conditions. In the well-fed person on the mixed diet, the main circulating energy molecules are glucose, triglycerides, and fatty acids. Of these three, only fatty acids are acidic. Examples of these are shown on the screen, and palmitic acid is shown as a representative of fatty acids on top. All fatty acids are subclasses of carboxylic acids. As their name implies, they're acidic. The reason they're acidic is that they have a carboxyl group, which has an H, shown in pink, that's capable of ionizing into solution. Positively charged hydrogen ions in solution are what contribute to the acidity of the solution. So as palmitic acid ionizes to form palmitate and a hydrogen ion, it contributes to the acidity of the blood. This is not true for triglycerides. In a triglyceride, we have a glycerol backbone bound to three fatty acids. As shown in red, the H of the glycerol combines with the OH of the fatty acid to make water. That joins the fatty acid to the glycerol in an ester bond, and the water leaves, which is why we call this dehydration th synthesis. One glycerol binds to three fatty acids through three dehydration synthesis reactions, forming one triglyceride and three water. Because the H that could have ionized is bound up in the water molecule, triglycerides carry fatty acids in a non-acidic form. Glucose is shown on the bottom. It does not contain a carboxyl group. It does not contain any functional groups that tend to ionize. Therefore, glucose, like triglycerides, is not acidic. After an overnight fast, 
most of the energy circulating in your blood is not acidic. You'll have about 5 millimolar glucose, 1 millimolar triglycerides, and 0.5 millimolar free fatty acids. The free fatty acids will mostly be bound to albumin, but they bind in their ionized form, so albumin-bound fatty acids are indeed acidic. But there's 5 plus 1 plus 0.5 equals 6.5 millimolar circulating energy between these three types of molecules. And 6 of the 6.5 is not acidic. That means the overwhelming majority of energy circulating in your blood under standard conditions is not acidic. All of this changes in ketosis. Ketone bodies reach higher concentrations than free fatty acids would usually rise to, and they're more acidic than fatty acids. This is demonstrated on the screen. Palmitic acid is shown on top as a representative of the fatty acids, and the two acidic ketone bodies, acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid, are shown on the bottom. We can compare their acidity per molecule, which is reflected in the pKa, or we can compare it per carbon or per energy yielded, which is the most informative. Let's walk through each of these. Palmitic acid has 16 carbons, yields 106 ATP when fully oxidized, and has a pKa of 4.75. Acetoacetic acid has four carbons, generates 19 ATP, and has a pKa of 3.58. The lower the pKa, the, pKa, the more acidic. So acetoacetic acid is substantially more acidic than palmitic acid. Beta-hydroxybutyric acid has four carbons, generates 21.5 ATP, and has a pKa of 4.7, which is much closer to that of palmitic acid, 4.75. On a per-molecule basis, acetoacetic acid stands out as the most acidic, and the reasons relate to the fundamental chemistry. If a carboxyl group ionizes, it will ionize more strongly if the ionic form is more stable. The ionic form is more stable when the negative charge left on the oxygen is weaker. And that's because a strong negative charge on the oxygen is gonna have strong attractive forces to pull the hydrogen ion back and glue it back to the molecule. A weakly charged oxygen is going to have less attractive force and is going to be more likely to allow the hydrogen ion to escape. What dictates how acidic a carboxyl group is, is what is surrounding it and what is influencing the negative charge on the oxygen. For palmitic acid, what's behind the carboxyl group is a long hydrocarbon chain. This consists of carbon and hydrogen, neither of which hold onto electrons very tightly compared to other atoms like oxygen. So these carbons are slightly electron donating meaning they allow their electronegativity to drift towards the carboxyl group. That enhances the negative charge on the oxygen and makes the oxygen more strongly attracted to the hydrogen. That makes palmitic acid a relatively weaker acid. Acetoacetic acid, by contrast, right behind the carboxyl group has a carbonyl group. This contains oxygen, which is very electronegative. But this oxygen is in a double bond because it's in the oxidized state and is relatively electron deficient. 
This oxygen is very hungry for electrons as a result and tends to pull the electronegativity toward itself. That weakens the negative charge on the oxygen, which allows the hydrogen ion to escape more freely. That makes acetoacetic acid a stronger acid than palmitic acid. When we reduce acetoacetic acid to beta-hydroxybutyric acid, we add electrons to this carbonyl. We turn it into a hydroxyl group. This is no longer electron deficient. The oxygen is an electronegative, but now it has more electrons. It's less hungry for them, and it's not pulling on the electronegativity toward itself as it is in acetoacetic acid. That allows this oxygen to have a stronger negative charge and be more attracted to the hydrogen like palmitic acid was. As a result, palmitic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid are relatively similar in their acidity, whereas acetoacetic acid stands out as a stronger acid. Now, most of the time, for a healthy person, you're gonna have two to three times more beta-hydroxybutyrate in your blood than you will acetoacetate. However, as we've discussed in previous lessons, the, hepatic ener the energy status of the person's hepatic mitochondria is gonna dictate that ratio. So there could be some people who have low levels of energy in hepatic mitochondria, meaning high NAD+, low NADH. As a result, they have a greater proportion of total ketone bodies present as acetoacetic acid in the blood. And for the same amount of ketone bodies, they will have a greater acid burden. Nevertheless, the real comparison here is less about the differences in pKa and more about the differences in ionizable, hydrogen, ionizable hydrogens per unit of energy carried. Let's start this analysis by comparing ionizable hydrogens per carbon. In palmitic acid, we have one ionizable hydrogen and 16 carbons. In both of the ketone bodies, we have one ionizable hydrogen for every four carbons. That means the ketone bodies are four times acidic than the fatty acid is on a per carbon basis. Now let's think about the energy. The two ketone bodies pictured here generate about 20 ATP per molecule, give or take a small amount. Palmitic acid generates over 100. That means that the ketone bodies are over five times as acidic as palmitic acid is on a per energy yielded basis. Because ketone bodies are small and carry such little energy, they have to rise to high millimolar concentrations in the blood to carry the same amount of energy. And as we've seen in previous lessons, total ketone bodies in prolonged fasting stabilize around seven to 10 millimolar. If you compare this to the 0.5 millimolar free fatty acids that you would have in someone on a mixed diet after an overnight fast, 10 millimolar is 20 times the acid burden. 10 times 0.5 is 20. Not only is it 20 times the acid burden, but under ketogenic conditions, you have an increased amount of free fatty acids. You may have the free fatty acids doubled or even more, and you have a greater acid burden from that. Plus, a portion of the ketone bodies is acetoacetate, which is more acidic on a per molecule basis. So you're looking at 
significant excess over 20 times the asset burden. Nevertheless, even with that greater asset burden, our bodies have compensatory mechanisms that allow us to maintain homeostasis. Among these, bicarbonate in the blood will bind to hydrogen ions, become carbon dioxide, and be removed in the breath. Our ventilation will speed up so we can facilitate greater carbon dioxide release. That removes acid from the blood. In addition, the kidney can excrete acids into the urine, and the kidney's own energy metabolism can generate carbon dioxide, allow it to dissolve and form bicarbonate, put the hydrogen ions in the urine, and put the bicarbonate back into the blood, thereby supporting continued buffering capacity in the blood. Together, these are respiratory compensation with our breath and renal compensation with our kidneys. Those mechanisms allow us to stabilize the blood pH so that even at 7 to 10 millimolar during prolonged fasting, blood pH still tends to stay in the normal range between 7.35 and 7.45. So because of acid, because of homeostasis, we prevent clinical ketoacidosis. In clinical ketoacidosis, we have total ketone bodies that exceed 20 millimolar. This is at least the doubling to tripling of what we'd get from prolonged fasting. In ketoacidosis, blood pH drops below 7.35, which constitutes clinical acidemia. Ketoacidosis is usually associated with poorly controlled diabetes. And what you see on the screen is data from a 1983 experiment taking type 1 diabetics off insulin to see how the production, utilization, and plasma concentrations of glucose and ketone bodies would change in response to insulin withdrawal. The plasma concentrations are shown on top, in the middle is production, and the bottom is utilization. In each of these graphs, the ketone bodies are shown in the dark red color, and the glucose is shown in the blue-gray color. On the left, the numbers represent the numbers for the ketone bodies. On the right, the numbers represent the numbers for glucose. What you can see when you look at concentration is that the glucose rises initially, but then levels off and plateaus. By contrast, the ketone body concentration continues to increase linearly throughout the entire time of insulin withdrawal. Why is this happening? Well, if we start with glucose, the production rate spikes initially, then levels off and starts dropping. It never drops all the way back down to normal, but it drops to much lower than its peak level. The utilization of glucose goes up as production is going up and then goes down as production goes down. What's probably happening is the only way the diabetics can utilize glucose in the absence of insulin is to produce glucose at such a high rate that you drive the glucose right into the cells through whatever glucose transporters are there in the absence of insulin. As production starts declining, there's less pressure on the concentration to rise, there's less driving the glucose into the cells, and so the uptake into the cells starts to drop down, and the combination of these counteracting mechanisms leads to a stabilization of the glucose concentration at the plateau level we see 
on the top graph. By contrast for ketones, ketone production starts rising and never stops. Ketone utilization starts rising and never stops. But the production exceeds the utilization, and therefore you have plasma concentrations of ketones that keep going up, keep going up, and keep going up, all the way up to close to 20 millimolar, at which point the experiment was terminated. So during diabetic ketoacidosis, from insulin deficiency, you get hyperglycemia and hyperketonemia at the same time. And this is driven by increased production of both glucose and ketone bodies. For glucose, that production peaks early, and for ketones, it keeps going up and up over 10 hours, coming to a peak at some later point. In the last lesson, we talked about ketone homeostasis, and we saw that ketones exert a negative feedback loop on their own production. Why in ketoacidosis does this negative feedback loop not seem to work? Well, part of the negative feedback loop is that ketones stimulate pancreatic insulin secretion. Obviously, in a type 1 diabetic, that aspect of the negative feedback loop is going to be impaired. But we also saw in the previous lesson that ketones at lower concentrations than will stimulate insulin still suppress adipose lipolysis. This is probably an action directly on adipose tissue, possibly by binding to the beta-hydroxybutyrate receptor, also known as the nicotinic acid receptor. Why doesn't that mechanism continue to operate in diabetic ketoacidosis? There's a couple ways to see this. First of all, perhaps it does, but the insulin response is still needed alongside it to get sufficient suppression of lipolysis. Another view might be that the basal levels of insulin that are always circulating are needed somehow to enable the suppression of lipolysis that ketones exert when acting directly on adipose tissue. And if you're deficient in even the basal levels, as a type 1 diabetic would be, that negative feedback stops working. Or perhaps the negative feedback loop is working, and yet so many other contrary signals overwhelm it. These possibilities are not mutually ex exclusive, but there's so much we need to learn about the nature of the negative feedback loop and how it works on a physiological and molecular biochemical level that we simply don't know the exact answers to this at this point. One thing we do know, however, is that despite whatever function or non-function there may be to the negative feedback loop that ketones exert, there definitely is more than a simple deficiency of insulin in diabetic ketoacidosis. Generally, you have deficiency of insulin plus the insulin being massively outweighed by counteracting hormones, chief among them excess glucagon. Others include norepinephrine and epinephrine, also known as noradrenaline and adrenaline, cortisol and growth hormone. Of these, growth hormone seems to be the least significant and cortisol the least consistent. Sometimes diabetic ketoacidosis isn't associated with an increase in cortisol. Norepinephrine and epinephrine seem to be more consistent but intermediate in their contribution. If you look at what happens in clinical cases of diabetic ketoacidosis, 
on an epidemiological level, there are numerous triggers of catabolic stress that tend to be associated with these events. The most obvious contributor is inadequate treatment, faulty treatment, or noncompliance with the treatment. Clearly, if there's not enough insulin treatment or it's not successful, that's a contributor to diabetic ketoacidosis. But other factors also seem to contribute. Often diabetic ketoacidosis is precipitated by fasting. The use of medications such as glucocorticoids or other medications, often medications that are less commonly used and therefore it's less well known that they're contributors to ketoacidosis. Cocaine or alcohol use may be involved, infection or other illness, surgery, heart attacks. Basically, anything that contributes to catabolic stress, the need to break down more energy on top of the diabetic condition can be a factor that precipitates diabetic ketoacidosis. But ketoacidosis is not always caused by diabetes. Take a look at this case report. Ketoacidosis in a non-diabetic woman who was fasting during lactation. Three weeks after delivery, she was admitted because of faster breathing and heart rate. She showed severe metabolic acidosis with a high anion gap. We'll talk about what the anion gap is when we look at the next case study, but it indicates that there's a high level of negatively charged species in the blood, such as ketone bodies, for example. Further workup revealed the presence of ketone bodies in the urine with normal blood glucose and no history of diabetes. She said that she had not eaten for days because of abdominal pain. After treatment in the ICU and immediate refeeding, her condition rapidly improved. While under normal circumstances, fasting causes at most only mild acidosis, it can be dangerous during lactation. Prolonged fasting in combination with different forms of stress put breastfeeding women at risk of starvation, ketoacidosis, and should therefore be avoided. Starvation ketoacidosis is, in fact, usually associated with pregnancy or lactation because simply fasting, meaning taking in zero calories, is not usually enough to lead to ketoacidosis. But when you're pregnant or lactating, you're not eating zero calories when you're fasting. If you're delivering 500 to 1,000 calories a day to your baby through lactation, you're consuming negative 500 to 1,000 calories. For all practical purposes, we should see your baby eating you alive in that case because you're not taking in the energy that's being put into the milk. You're just taking apart your body tissues to make the milk. And that's putting you in a far more severe caloric deficit than anyone outside of pregnancy and lactation could possibly ever achieve. And so what we can see here is that ketoacidosis can be precipitated simply by the extremity of catabolic stress. Now, perhaps this woman had other conditions underlying this that we don't know about that would have interfered with the negative feedback loop that ketones possess, but it seems far more likely that the degree of her catabolic stress overwhelmed the homeostatic negative feedback loop. And this is concerning because it means that outside of diabetes, 
any of those catabolic stressors that could precipitate diabetic ketoacidosis could also precipitate ketoacidosis in individuals who are otherwise healthy. Ketoacidosis can also happen in response to alcohol abuse when paired with malnourishment. Take a look at this case report titled, Ketoacidosis is not always due to diabetes. Chronic alcoholism is a frequently unrecognized cause of ketoacidosis. Most patients with alcohol ketoacidosis present with normal or low glucose, but this condition can present with hyperglycemia. This can lead to misdiagnosis of diabetes ketoacidosis and therefore inappropriate treatment with insulin. We describe a 37-year-old Caucasian woman with chronic pancreatitis, secondary to excess alcohol consumption, admitted with abdominal pain and vomiting, fulfilling the criteria for diabetes ketoacidosis. She was treated according to diabetes ketoacidosis protocol and experienced a hypoglycemic attack within an hour of initiation of insulin. On review of her history, she was found to have three similar episodes over the past 12 months. So four attacks of alcoholic ketoacidosis. Alcoholic ketoacidosis can present with hyperglycemia due to a relative deficiency of insulin and a relative surplus in counter-regulatory stress hormones, including glucagon. Awareness of the syndrome with a detailed history helps to differentiate alcohol ketoacidosis from diabetes ketoacidosis and prevent iatrogenic hypoglycemia. In other words, usually al alcoholic ketoacidosis presents with normal or low blood sugar. In their case, iatrogenic hypoglycemia means they treated her with insulin when they shouldn't have because she doesn't have diabetes. What's happening here is in alcohol abuse, we have ethanol metabolized to acetaldehyde, then acetate, and then acetyl-CoA. Ethanol generates acetyl-CoA, like fatty acids, but is not anaplerotic, so it doesn't generate oxaloacetate. If the person is malnourished and they're not eating enough protein and carbohydrate, they have increased gluconeogenesis and inadequate anaplerosis, which contributes to a deficiency of oxaloacetate. The excess of acetyl-CoA over oxaloacetate, as we know, means that instead of forming citrate, acetyl-CoA will be directed into ketogenesis. So alcoholism, especially combined with malnourishment, is ketogenic. And in this case, the pressure to generate acetyl-CoA from alcohol is even higher because this isn't just an energy metabolism pathway, but in the case of ethanol, a poison, it's a detoxification pathway. So the pressure is high to generate that acetyl-CoA, whether you need the energy or not. Although low-carbohydrate diets are safe and contribute to ketosis without clinical acidemia in almost everyone known to use them, it's still the case that rarely a low-carbohydrate diet can cause ketoacidosis. Take a look at this case titled, A Life-Threatening Complication of the Atkins Diet. These authors say, in February of 2004, we saw a 40-year-old obese white woman who complained of dyspnea, dysregulated breathing. Five days earlier, her appetite had decreased. She had felt nauseous and had since vomited four to six times a day. She became increasingly short of breath and presented to us as an emergency. She had strictly followed the low-carbohydrate, high-protein Atkins diet, eating meat, cheese, and salads for the previous month. She took vitamins recommended by the diet, chromium picolinate, Atkins Basic 3 multivitamins, 
Atkins Essential Oils, Atkins Dieters Advantage Electrolytes and Extracts, Atkins Excel, a thermogenic formula. And as instructed, instructed by the original Atkins diet book, she monitored her urine twice daily with dipsticks, strongly positive for ketones. She reported weight loss of about nine kilograms over this one month period, which is about over 20 pounds in that month. On presentation to the emergency department, our patient was in moderate distress with a respiratory rate of 20 to 30 breaths per minute. On examination, her bowel sounds were hyperactive and she had mild epigastric tenderness. Otherwise, clinical examination was unremarkable with normal vital signs. Her BMI was 41.6, so she was obese, and her arterial blood pH was 7.19, way below the 7.35 to 7.45 normal range of blood pH. Skipping below a little bit, the anion gap was high at 26 millimoles per liter. This deserves a little explanation. The anion gap is an estimation of the number of negatively charged acids in the blood. The way you calculate it is you take sodium, which is the main circulating positively charged ion. Positively charged ion is called a cation, as opposed to a negatively charged ion, which is called an anion. So sodium as the main cation minus the sum of chloride and bicarbonate, the main circulating anions. There must always be an equal number of cations and anions in the blood because there must always be electric neutrality. When you subtract the sum of those two anions from the sodium concentration, you always get a positive number because there are always some circulating anions that you didn't measure when you just looked at the chloride and bicarbonate. That's called the anion gap. And it's normal to have an anion gap that's somewhere between three and 16 millimoles per liter. She has an anion gap that's high at 26 millimoles per liter. That means that she has 10 millimoles per liter of circulating anions beyond what's considered normal. That could be 10 millimoles per liter of ketones or it could be that her ketone levels are higher because remember the normal anion gap can be as little as three. Moving on, her serum glucose was normal at 4.2 millimoles per liter. Urine analysis confirmed ketonuria, supporting that the anion gap might be constituted by excess ketones. And we go on and we'll skip ahead. When you have a high anion gap, you have to figure out what the circulating anions that you're not measuring are. And so it says the differential diagnosis of a high anion gap metabolic acidosis includes methanol, ethylene glycol, or salicylate, LRD lactic acidosis, and ketoacidosis due to diabetes, alcohol, or starvation. As we saw before, starvation ketoacidosis may be, probably involves pregnancy or lactation. Our patient denied alcohol abuse and her serum osmolar gap was zero, which excludes the presence of unmeasured osmotic agents such as methanol or ethylene glycol. L-lactate concentration was normal. Salicylate was undetectable. D-lactate acidosis was unlikely without antibiotic use or bowel surgery. Serum was positive for acetone and beta-hydroxybutyrate was high at 390 micrograms per milliliter, consistent with ketoacidosis. 
In other words, they knew that there was some excess of negatively charged species in the blood. They tested all the possible ones that might contribute to acidosis. And the only one that they could find was ketones, supporting a diagnosis of ketoacidosis. Now, this beta-hydroxybutyrate concentration, according to my calculations, is about 3.7 millimoles per liter beta-hydroxybutyrate. If beta-hydroxybutyrate is present at two to three times the concentration of acetoacetate, then it's unlikely her total ketone bodies are greater than five to six millimoles per liter. So there has to be one of two possible interpretations here, and I don't think the authors go into enough detail to try to figure this out. Four, five, six millimoles per liter should not be causing ketoacidosis. So either she has some deficiency in her energy metabolism that's contributing to unusually high NAD plus in her liver and unusually low NADH, leading to much more acetoacetate in the blood than we would expect, in which case this beta-hydroxybutyrate is an underestimate of her total ketone body level and the acetoacetate itself would be more acidic than the beta-hydroxybutyrate would be, or she has some underlying deficiency in her ability to buffer that acidity. Remember, even having normal ketosis is an enormously increased acid load. It's just that our buffering capacity in a healthy person should be fully capable of handling it and normalizing the blood pH. Perhaps she has a normal level of nutritional ketosis and there's something wrong with her buffering capacity. We don't know the answers to these questions. In any case, they conclude, our patient had an underlying ketosis caused by the Atkins diet and developed severe ketoacidosis, possibly when her oral intake was compromised from mild pancreatitis or gastroenteritis. This problem may become more recognized because this diet is becoming increasingly popular worldwide. So maybe she wasn't eating enough and she was in a state of rapid weight loss and maybe that contributed to an energetic deficiency that made everything worse. Whatever the case, it is clear that at least sometimes a low-carbohydrate diet can contribute to ketoacidosis in susceptible individuals. The problem is we don't know what makes that susceptibility up. Let's take a look at one more case report of ketoacidosis in response to a low-carbohydrate diet. This one published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January 2006. These authors write to the editor, it is believed that low-carbohydrate diets work best in reducing weight gain when in reducing weight when producing ketosis. We report on a 51-year-old white woman who does not have diabetes but had ketoacidosis while consuming a no-carbohydrate diet. There was no family history of diabetes. She was not currently taking any medications. While adhering to a regimen of carbohydrate restriction, she reached a stable weight of 59.1 kilograms, which was a decrease from 72.7. After several months of stable weight, she was admitted to the hospital four times with vomiting, but without abdominal pain. On each occasion, she reported no alcohol use. Her BMI was 26.7, which is slightly overweight, before the weight loss, and 21.7 afterwards, which is a healthy weight. Laboratory evaluation showed anion gap acidosis, ketonuria, and elevated plasma glucose concentrations on three of the four occasions. This is four events of ketoacidosis. 
She had normal concentrations of lactate and glycosylated hemoglobin, screening for drugs including ethyl alcohol and ethylene glycol with negative. Abdominal ultrasonography showed hepatic steatosis. So she was overweight. She had fatty liver, as many people who are overweight do. She was on a low-carbohydrate diet that successfully led to weight loss. None of these are remarkable in signaling an underlying vulnerability to ketoacidosis. On each occasion, the patient recovered after administration of intravenous fluids and insulin. Insulin was prescribed on discharge, and gradually, the patient gradually reduced the use of insulin and then discontinued it while remaining euglycemic for six months or more between episodes. They tested her for a variety of other issues and go on to say, the patient strictly adhered to a low-carbohydrate diet for four years with an estimated carbohydrate intake that was often less than 20 grams per day. When she was put on a diet containing normal amount of carbohydrates, her fasting plasma glucose and the results of oral glucose tolerance tests were normal. With a normal carbohydrate intake, she had no more episodes of ketoacidosis. They go on to explain the mechanism of ketogenesis, and then they conclude, benign dietary ketosis resulting from restricting carbohydrates could theoretically cause ketoacidosis in persons with a predisposition to the condition. Carbohydrate-restricted high-fat diets may have adverse metabolic squillae when followed for protracted periods. One of the problems in analyzing these case reports is we don't know what the underlying vulnerabilities are. There could be genetic vulnerabilities. There could be occult infections that we don't understand, other metabolic stresses. The point is, ketoacidosis is not just about diabetes. Diabetes is the most common cause of it, but alcohol abuse, fasting during pregnancy or lactation, or low-carbohydrate diets in susceptible individuals can be contributors. This is not meant in any way to suggest that low-carbohydrate diets are likely to cause ketoacidosis. They're not. But it's important for us to understand that diet combined with the right genetic circumstantial, and whatever vulnerabilities exist that contribute to catabolic stress and intolerance to the carbohydrate restriction can produce ketoacidosis. Understanding this is critical to understanding what we're going to discuss in the next lesson, which is why there is a stunning adaptation in the Arctic to prevent ketogenic responses to high-fat diets. We'll look at that one next time. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a forum for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash pro. All right. I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass, Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.